Today we begin a series on the prophet Jonah. And you wonder, well, wait a minute, we're, we, our text isn't in Jonah. That's right, it's in 2 Kings. And the name Jonah is mentioned once, just once. And, and so you wonder why in the world would we begin a series on Jonah in such an obscure to many text. And that's because we aren't going to understand the book of Jonah unless we understand the context of his calling and ministry and why God was acting in the life of one prophet. You see, God had something in mind for more than that prophet himself. So I want us to turn to this passage in uh, <clears throat> Second Kings chapter 14. And it's printed in your bulletin if you, <clears throat> if you uh, would prefer to read it there. I hope that you do get in the habit of bringing your Bibles. This is from the 1984 uh, edition of uh, the New International Version. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 29. Hear then the word of the living God. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah... Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria. He reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath, the entrance to Hamath, unto the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did and his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Yaudi, the Jews, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king thus far in God's word. Let's again turn to him in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we cannot understand your word unless your spirit quickens our hearts and our minds to do so. <clears throat> and we cannot receive it and be changed and transformed by it unless that same spirit, your spirit, works in our hearts to do so. You are a God of mighty, invincible grace. We are your people here gathered to hear a word from you. I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit would speak to us through your word this day. We pray that you would transform us. For having met here, 
in your presence and heard you speak by your spirit through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I must be doing something right. My friend was rather profligate. He wasn't particularly religious, and his language was salty. But he said, look, I'm successful. How could I be successful if God really detested the things I do, if uh, I'm really the sinner that you say the Bible say, says that I am? Why would I have such success? Everything I want, I must be doing something right. Some years ago, the musical Sound of Music with Julie Andrews came on, and somewhere in my miserable childhood, I must have done something good. Our merit, you see, we think, must count for something. And the Bible says it doesn't. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, and I won't exegete it because it is a very foul expression in Hebrew. And that's the best we have to offer God in our sinful selves. The only good we have to offer him is Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's by grace we're told we're saved through faith. That's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not something we earn. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his craftsmanship, his poem. That's the Greek word. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works. That's where they come in. The fruit, not the root, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. Ah, but we tend to revert, don't we, to our default mode of wanting to claim some part of our own meritorious standing with God. Um, before some in this room were born, <laughs> we're adults now, there was a film with Olivia Newton-John uh, titled Xanadu, and it was quite the hit in its day. Have to believe we are magic. Nothing can stand in our way. I can't sing. But some of you are smiling, either because you remember the lyrics or because you're smiling at my <clears throat> poor attempt to sing it. The point is that people loved it. Have to believe we're magic. Nothing can stand in our way. We're not magic. God may give us success sometimes. And that doesn't mean by itself he is necessarily pleased with us. That's the point of this this morning. I need to paint a little background for this before we get into our very brief outline. 200 years before this passage is written, almost two and a half centuries, King Solomon had reigned and finished his reign. He'd had a wonderful beginning. God had given him so much as God had promised. Solomon had not been faithful to the Lord during his reign. He'd made alliances with foreign kings. And we're not supposed to do that. He'd taken foreign wives. Now, in many cases, that was part of international treaties where you'd seal it. You'd take the, uh, the uh, daughter of a, of a vassal king, and she was half your wife, half or part of your harem, and, and half hostage. 
<clears throat> and that's the way the Gentile nations around Israel did it. And uh, that's what Solomon did. Um, he even allowed those wives to build altars and temples to their foreign gods within Israel. Not inside of Zion, not in Jerusalem where the temple was. That was too holy. What about the rest of the holy land? Wasn't that holy too? Solomon did that. God said to Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I won't do it in your time. <clears throat> I won't do it in your time, but in your son's day I'm going to tear a part of the kingdom from him, most of it. But I'm going to leave him a remnant so that the line of David can endure. Why? Because you deserve it? No, because of my sure promises to David, your father. God keeps his covenant, even when we don't deserve for him to do that. Solomon died. I believe he ended on a higher note than he had lived. I think the book of Ecclesiastes is clearly written by Solomon. And in it, Solomon <clears throat> gives one t uh, effort after another, one avenue after another of how he'd sought after meaning in life <clears throat> through riches, through public works, through being really religious, through all kinds of things. And they all led nowhere until he gained an eternal perspective and recognized that God's judgment awaits us after death. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. For the Christian, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we need to understand that there is an answering. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul says, to give an account for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Our accounting as Christians is what Christ has done in our behalf. Solomon died. His son Rehoboam had the kingdom torn from him. Most of the kingdom, the northern ten tribes, all succeeded under one of the, uh, one of the officials of Rehoboam's father, King Solomon. Someone called Jeroboam. Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And God said to Jeroboam, I'm not going to give you all of the tribes. I promised David to keep his dynasty. I'm going to keep that promise. And Rehoboam's going to keep the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. <clears throat> but now you will have the northern tribes. If you follow me, I will establish your dynasty just as I have promised David. Wow. What an opportunity. Jeroboam messed it up. He said, yeah, but, 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 but. And that's how we start when we quibble with God. But, 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 you know, if I let the people obey God, he says for all the men to come three times a year to the temple in Mount Zion and appear before the Lord. If they do that, they'll renew old camaraderie and they'll feel like they're part of one people of God again because they are and, and then they'll want to go back to the house of David I can't trust God to keep his promise they'll kill me that'll be the end of it no 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 my life is at stake sorry God but I, I can't trust you with my life and David had Jeroboam Son of Nebat didn't. What did Jeroboam do? Oh, I'll fix that, he said. He put guards at the border and said, no trespassing. Ah, not just 
people coming in, that was all right. But in this case, people can't get out. Kind of reminds me of the Berlin Wall, for those of you who are old enough to remember it. Uh, the whole city of, of East Berlin became, as it were, a, a prison city in the last days of communism world communism. And uh, so, so Jeroboam said, uh, I'm going to turn people back. They can't go into Judah. We won't let them do that. They can't worship there. What are we going to do about their altars? I mean, about their offerings three times. We've got just the solution. Going to build temples, two of them. One up north in Dan. That's not the original tribal allotment to Dan. That's a place that uh, was uh, uh, conquered that was actually outside of the promised land that God had allotted them where, uh, where the people were at peace and not at war and they were not the, uh, the Canaanites under the ban. And, and a group of Danites had, in the time of the judges decided that it was too much trouble to, to uh, 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 evict the Canaanites from their allotted land. They couldn't trust God with that. So they could, great warriors as they were, they'd go up north and, and ambush people who weren't prepared for battle and were outside of the area that God had allotted. Not only that, but on the way, they picked up a, a, a Levite and an idol and, and an ephod and, and set up their own shrine up north, all of which was contrary to God's word. Dan. Dan to Beersheba. That meant north to south in Israel. But, well, what about Bethel? Bethel was a place where a lot of things had happened. It's where, uh, where uh, Jacob had had his vision of the, the staircase between heaven and earth, his dream. Jacob's ladder. It's actually a staircase. And, and uh, so that was a special place. A lot of other things had happened at Bethel. So I said, we'll put one there. It's also very conveniently close to the border, you see. So when people start to try to go through the border to Jerusalem, we said, no, 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 it's easier just go right here. We've got just the place for you. If they didn't want to do it, they, had, they, they were turned back by force. Their sacrifice is confiscated. Whoa. And these two temples were dedicated to Yahweh, to the Lord, the God of Israel, in which he built shrines and altars, counterfeit temples, counterfeit altars. He had priests, what, descendants of Aaron? Oh, no. Even Levites? Not necessarily. Who wants to be a priest? Oh, I do, I do, I do. Okay, you and you and you. Okay, you can be priests. That's how he got his priests. Nothing to do with God's choosing and ordaining them. Counterfeit priesthood. Counterfeit altars. What's worse, he put golden calves in each of them. Remember the golden calf? Sure you do. Mount Sinai. Moses is up receiving the law of God. He's up there for a long period of time, 40 days and 40 nights. And, and uh, while he's up there, the people say, oh, we don't know what's happened to him, this Moses. Let's appoint us a leader who will lead us back and let's make ourselves a... And they made themselves a golden calf. God judged them for that that day. You remember when Moses came back down? God said, stand aside, Moses, I'm going to obliterate them. Moses said, no, no, no. Let your wrath fall on me if it's going to fall on your people. But spare. Have mercy. They don't deserve it. 
And he stood in the breach, and God said, The one who sins, I'll judge. A refrain he'll say again and again to his people. And Moses is a picture of, he's not sinless, but he's a picture of the sinless one who does stand in the breach. Ultimately, as we spoke about it last week, at Golgotha, where he absorbs the death stroke for the sins of his people in himself on the cross and says, spare them. I'll die in their stead, and he does. Rising again, the third day, no man takes my life, he said. I lay it down, and I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it back up, and he did. God judged Jeroboam, son of Nebat. His dynasty did not last. But every king of the northern kingdom, without exception, every king of every dynasty in the northern kingdom, without exception, continued to sanction and sponsor and approve of, or at least turn a blind eye to, the twin temples, especially the one in Bethel. Dan and Bethel. And so we read again and again that, that almost funerary refrain in the book of Kings. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He turned not aside from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. Whatever other things they did, however good they may have been in the eyes, in human eyes, in terms of being a good administrator, in terms of being powerful militarily, in terms of being economically canny, you know, and, and uh, in terms of the arts, and whatever they may be, however good otherwise they were. The final line, God's ultimate assessment, bottom line, pass or fail, he said they failed. Did evil. Did evil did evil, not turning aside the same reason from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, that's not the same Jeroboam, obviously, as this Jeroboam. This Jeroboam is almost a bookend compared to the other one. He lives and reigns right up to 40 years before the fall of the northern kingdom. But meanwhile, you have some of God's mercy. He's active in the north. He sends prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And there are people that he calls to himself. There are people who fear the Lord like Obed-Edom who hides the prophets of the Lord so that King Ahab and Je Queen Jezebel cannot find them and kill them. In the time of Elisha, there's the woman of Shunem who fears the Lord and prepares a prophet's chamber on the roof of her home and, and allows him to, to, as he passes back and forth in his ministry, itinerant service throughout the land, she provides a place. There are believers. There's a remnant within an apostate nation. And God has not, insert the word, yet said, time's up. Not yet said, judgment day has come. Now, <clears throat> Jeroboam, 
the second, that's this Jeroboam, had a great-grandfather who was a tank commander. <laughs> uh, he was a charioteer, a general or captain. And um, that was in the time of the dynasty, the reigning of the dynasty of King Ahab, one of the w most wicked uh, kings the northern kingdom ever had. You remember Elijah had a lot of his uh, showdowns with uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, his his Canaanite queen. She was uh, Her father was the king of, uh, of Sidon. And... Uh, Ishbael was his name, and she was in a, a, a very much a supporter of Baal worship and of uh, Ashtoreth worship and the goddess uh, of the sky. And, and um, she uh, persecuted the prophets of God, closed down the, the worship of the Lord everywhere throughout the kingdom she could. God pronounced his judgment on them and said, I'm going to wipe out that entire family line. And he did. We don't have time to talk about how Ahab met his end or how Jezebel met hers sometime later. But a part of that was Jehu's rise to power. God sent a, a, a prophet to anoint Jehu as king. And uh, he did it privately and ran out of the room and Jehu had been called aside by him and uh, when he came back in drinking bout with his uh, fellow commanders, and what was that about? Well, he says, hey, you know the man, you know what he's likely to say. Oh, no, tell us. He said, well, he claimed to be from Yahweh and anointed me king. Ha, ha, ha. And he was stunned, I'm sure, by the response. Oh, he's and they all raised their uh, cups, as it were, to toast him. They did cheer him. They got behind him, and he became the leader of a military coup. And he proceeded to wipe out the entire line of Ahab. The last to die that's recorded was Jezebel herself, painted woman to the end. God said in chapter 10 and, uh, and uh, in verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. That's a promise by God to Jehu. I want you to understand a couple things. Number one, Jehu himself is not a worshiper of God. He wants Billy Graham in the White House. He, he asks for uh, um, uh, someone who is well recognized um, uh, to enter his chariot and come along with him. Someone who is a, a uh, recognized uh, uh, descendant of Rahab, Jonadab. And that's recorded for us by the prophet uh, uh, Jeremiah. And it's also recorded here in first in uh, Second Kings. And uh, um, Jehu's heart, though, is not right toward God. And at the end, we're told he too did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which caused Israel to sin. He did evil. So why didn't God sweep him away? Because he'd promised. Listen, God had promised to the fourth generation. Meanwhile, 
under Jehu's time, there was the chastening of God. Aramean, Syrian raiding parties came in. They took back bits and pieces of the northern kingdom. It began to be chewed up and, and uh, 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 parceled out among the neighboring kings. Raiding parties stole away young uh, Hebrew children like the uh, uh, young servant girl of Naaman's wife, general of Syria. People suffered people who were themselves relatively innocent because of the evil deeds and choices of their leaders. There are steels, pictures uh, in the, uh, discovered in the capital uh, archives of ancient, the capital of ancient Syria, uh, Assyria rather, of, of uh, Jehu actually offering his uh, tribute to the overlordship of the king of Assyria, Jehu. Not supposed to do that. He did it. That's how impotent he had become. Fast forward four generations later. <laughs> well, it's three beyond him, so it's his great-grandson. It's the time of Jeroboam II. Ah, Jeroboam II. Let me tell you about what happens there. There is a renaissance in Israel just before the lights go out. Forty-one years Jeroboam reigns. He's given military victory and able to extend the power of Israel once again in its sway and its boundaries to David's boundaries of old in the north. There's economic prosperity no famines, no crop failures. Everyone's doing well. The arts are, I'm sure, doing well. They, there's, uh, politically, he's, uh, he's got a lot of power in the region. Everything you'd want, right? No, everything but one. There is no spiritual revival that moves through the people. There are individuals in whose hearts God is working. His remnant is still present, but the nation or the northern kingdom does not experience renewal. They get one last reprieve, and Jonah is part of it. We'll talk more beginning next week about Jonah, but let's begin there. Notice that in the text, God's mercy and forbearance calls us, we're taught, to repentance, not complacence. And that is underscored by teaching of the text regarding God's mercy and God's call. Regarding his mercy, God's grace may be shown toward the rebellious. Verse 25, we read, He was the one, Jeroboam, second, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohemath, the entrance of Tehemath, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, in accordance with the word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, his name means dove, some of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. See, God's grace isn't grounded in our deserving. It's grounded in his own 
covenant faithfulness. Verses, verse 25 occurs in a context, and we've just talked about that context, how in uh, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, um, the Lord says to Jehu, Because you've done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And in chapter 15, the very next chapter, and, and uh, verse 12, we read, So the word of the Lord spoken to Jehu was fulfilled. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. It would be Jehu. Jeroboam the second son who is deposed and killed. Not Jeroboam. Jeroboam's the fourth generation. And he has not an ordinary reign, a very long and distinguished reign. And it is Israel's last reprieve. See, God's grace never condones our sin, verse 28. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did, all his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Yahudi, the Jews, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? But it never says that he humbled his heart before the Lord. And in the end, it's said of him, as of the others, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Presidents Nixon and Clinton both lied to the American people and were caught in their lies. Now, they're not alone in having intentionally misrepresented the truth. Uh, the treatment of one was outrage. The treatment of the other was hardly more than a societal shrug or so what. Part of the explanation of the difference is in the perceived offenses of each. But part of it is surely the result of the, re of the emergence of postmodernism and its accompanying pragmatism. Pragmatism is arguably the dominant ethic of today's culture. If it works for me, it's okay. I must be doing something right. Having learned something of the mercy of God, let's look at his call. God's merciful forbearance is intended to draw us to repentance. The whole point of this narrative, which has the sad ending in chapter 17, under Israel's last king, Hosea, as Samaria is leveled, reduced, and uh, and captured, and all the people are carried off into captivity in Assyria. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? God's kindness to us, his forbearance, his long-suffering, is there to draw us to examine our hearts and to repent before him. You see, God's forbearance has a limit Verse 27 says, Has not the Lord had not said, I would insert the implied word yet, not yet said, he would eventually, that he would blot out Israel. Time was coming, hadn't come yet. The reprieve is extended. It's not interminable. It's not without limit. 
It's commonly expressed sentiment by many. Oh, I want to I wanna live for myself while I can. I remember when I was younger having some of my, uh, uh, my <coughs> fellow officers say this to me. I want to live for myself while I can, while I'm young and can enjoy life. When I'm old and, then, uh, and I've sown my wild oats, then I can turn to God and still avoid hell, avoid judgment. That's so? See, we don't know in the first place when our lives will end. Jesus said of the rich man who thought he'd put aside enough for the rest of his life, you fool, you fool. This night your soul will be required of you then. Shall, whom shall these things be? But not only do we not know when our lives will end or whether we'll even have a tomorrow in which to repent, but we don't also know when God's Spirit will cease to strive with our spirit to convict us and draw us to himself. That's why the book of Ecclesiastes, I'm convinced, written by Solomon, the last thing he ever wrote that's been recorded for us. We have his Proverbs and so on, but and Song of Songs. But, we, but he writes in that final 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth. When the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when you'll say, I have no pleasure in them. We tend to die as we have lived. And the old man who's lived a reprobate life tends, not always in God's mercy, but tends to die a reprobate old man. The time to make peace with God is now. Scripture says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put it off, my brother, my sister, my friend. Understand that when God sent his son Jesus to earth to live the perfect life that his Righteous holiness demands of us and none of us have satisfied. Identifying himself with our human race without ceasing to be God. And when he gave that life willingly on the cross and took that life back up again on the resurrection Sunday of the first Easter, rose and ascended into heaven and there reigns over history with his promise to come again at the consummation of the great story of redemption when he's finished calling out for himself not a tiny remnant, but a great host that no one can number from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue who will sing around the throne, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive riches and glory and honor and praise. There's no higher privilege, nor calling, nor future destiny than that. Do you, have you come to understand that it is only through acknowledging the truth of that and coming repentantly for our sins, for your sins? I come repentantly for mine to him and say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling and come to him and trust him at his word that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That, my friends, is the gospel. It's represented in the Lord's table of which we will shortly partake those who are so trusting in him. God's mercy 
calls us to covenant renewal. Verse 27, he saved them. Did they deserve it? No, but he saved them. God's promise to Jehu when he cleansed the land from Baal worship, that promise God yet kept. There's the connection to Jonah's prophecy, verse 25, according to the word of the Lord to him through the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, prophet from Agath-Heber. And um, we'll say more about that beginning next week in our series on Jonah. Jonah had a lesson to learn, a lesson that all Israel needed to learn, and that God intended Israel to be challenged by through the experience of Jonah. And that's why the book is written, and he intends us to be challenged by it and learn through it too. God's grace may be shown toward the rebellious. It's grounded in his own covenant faithfulness. It never condones our sin. And God's merciful forbearance is intended to draw us to repentance. His forbearance has a limit. And his mercy calls us to covenant renewal. You see, all this underscores that central truth with which we began. That God's mercy and forbearance calls us to repentance, not complacence. Perhaps you've come today, you are a child of God. You had... Ask the Lord into your heart and life. Acknowledge him both as Savior and as Lord because he will not be Savior if he is not also Lord. At the same time, our understanding of his Lordship may and often does grow. And perhaps in your life experience as a believer, there have been certain besetting sins in your life. Easy to wave off. They're not so big in the eyes of the world. You know from your study of the word of God or just God, God's spirits convicting of your heart that they don't please the Lord. And you, you keep putting them off and the Lord says don't put them off anymore. Perhaps you have said I'm going to stop it and, and I'm going to make it right. Willpower and, and you failed. That's because willpower alone never will break a strong embedded habit. Perhaps it's a besetting sin that like the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin, has also become an impediment in your relationship with dear ones to you, family members, friends, your ministry. Christ has come. He doesn't throw out the penitent. He doesn't take those who are brokenhearted and come to him and say, Leave me, you foul, wretched creature. What you've said is true, and I want nothing to do with you any. No, no. When we come brokenhearted to him, not holding our fists defiantly in his face and defending ourselves and insisting on our right to defy him. No, no, that's a different thing. When we come brokenhearted, he opens his arms to us. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me a new mastery. For my yoke is actually easy. My burden actually is light. For I am meek and lowly of spirit and you will find rest unto your souls.
Let's pray.